We took a little break for some Christmas messages. We've been going through, previous to that, uh, some questions, five questions, five questions that we get asked a lot as believers. Um, We sometimes get asked these questions as as a challenge to try to justify our faith by from unbelievers or atheists even. Um, sometimes these questions are asked by seekers, those who are truly looking for answers. And sometimes they're actually asked by believers as we begin to sometimes question things in our own mind. Um, we sometimes think that we are supposed to know and understand all things. And the reality is only God knows and understands all things. And he will reveal to us what he wants to, when he wants to, and how he wants to. We've looked at three of the questions so far. The first one was, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And we didn't even have to climb to a mountaintop in Tibet to find the answer. It's in the Word of God. One of the scriptures that we looked at was where one of the scribes, the Pharisees, were, they were challenging Jesus. And they were always challenging Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to, trying to undermine his authority, trying to to uh, show that he really wasn't who he said he was and didn't have answers for everything. But in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, one of them asked this question. He says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? When they asked that question, you've got to realize they had some 633 laws and commandments they were supposed to keep. And he said, which one's the most important? Well, Jesus wasn't stumped for a moment. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What is the most important commandment? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why did Jesus come? And it was all we decided it was all about relationship. The meaning of life is to have a relationship with the Lord. We were created for that relationship with the Lord. The meaning of life is to have relationship with other people, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the meaning of life. That is what brings glory and honor to God. Does our life have other meaning? Of course it does. We've all been given a calling, gifts, talents, a destiny. But the primary meaning of life is to be in relationship with God. And out of that relationship comes relationship with other people. It's one of those things that it, it, it seems too simple, but it's profound. The second question we had was, does God really exist? If the meaning of life is all about a relationship with him, does he really exist? Is he out there? And we looked at evidence, and we looked to the heavens. We looked to the, to the creation. We looked to all of the intricate, intelligent design that had to be required to create and hold everything in its place. The universe He holds the stars and the moons in their place. The design of the human body, the intricate, intelligent design. In Genesis 1.1, it said, in the beginning, God. We looked at the reality that nothing can become something. If you look at all of the theories that are out there, eventually you get back to that place, well, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And you get to this place where something must have came from nothing. Well, it defies all the laws of science, all the laws of physics. Nothing will create nothing. 
so we decided that there had to be something outside of the natural realm, something outside of time, something outside of manner, something outside of space, something outside of energy that it could have initiated all that came into being. And that would require an all-powerful, intelligent, creative something that didn't require or was not matter, energy, space, or time. And we decided that would be God. Is there any evidence? And this is one of the things that I, I really liked in that teaching was, is there any evidence that anything like that exists? Does anything exist outside of matter, space, time, or energy? And the answer is yes. And it's found in each one of us. Our soul, our spirit. That part of us that no one could put their finger on. No doctor, no technician, no scientist, no matter how good they are, can find those things in the human body because they're not there in the way that they could ever discover them. They exist out of space, time, matter, and energy. Does God exist? Third question was, do all religions lead to God? So often that is one of the questions we get asked by seekers or those challenging us that, boy, you Christians are an intolerant group of people. You think you're the only ones going to heaven. Don't all religions lead to God? And we discovered by looking at some of the major religions like Hindu and Buddhist and Muslim that they aren't even trying to get to God. The question is absurd. Do all religions lead to God? No. They aren't even trying to get there. They don't even believe necessarily that there is a God. Muslims are trying to get to paradise. Why? To be where God is? No. So they can experience all the pleasures of this life that they didn't, didn't involve themselves in. You know, like 70 virgins and all that stuff. It's not about getting to God. Buddhists, they don't believe there is a God. If there is a God, He's in everything and He's everywhere. So the question is totally wrong. They're not even trying to all get to God. And we look at a scripture that says in John 14, 6, when Jesus again is questioned and he says these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As a Christian, if we believe in the word of God, we believe what it says, the answer is crystal clear. Jesus himself said there is only one way. And this makes Christianity so unique. There is only one way. You know, Muhammad... Buddha, they did not even claim to be divine. Jesus claimed to be God. He was raised from the dead. Buddha died. Muhammad died. And they're still dead. Christianity is a unique religion. It is the only one that truly leads to God. The question we're going to look at next week is, is there life after death? And this week we're looking at the question, why is there evil and suffering? Well, I bet almost everybody in here has had that question asked to them or asked that question themselves. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And that's the title of the message. If God exists, why is there evil and suffering? Well, the problem is, and the way it's usually stated to us when someone is challenging with this, with this line of thinking, it says, if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, then how can there be evil in the world? Since we know that there's evil in the world, there must not be a God. Or, 
if there is a God, because there's evil in the world, he must not truly be all good, and he must not truly be all powerful. And that usually puts us in a place of, okay, what do we say to that? What do we say when we get asked that question? And I think it's probably one of the most common questions we get asked by people who are trying to understand. I believe most of the time when we hear that question, they want there to be a God. But something's happened in their life. Something happened in their past. I can think of so many of my family members, people that I know personally, where there's been some sort of tragedy. Or oftentimes it'll, it'll come up after natural disasters. If there is a God, how can we have a hurricane that kills so many people? How can there be a tsunami over in that part of the world that killed thousands of people? How can there be a God, and if there is a God, he certainly isn't good, and he certainly isn't all-powerful, or he has stopped all of that? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? The main goal of this type of thinking, I believe, is to show that Christianity is logically contradictory to itself. And that's a good way to make the argument because that's the same argument we would make against a lot of these other religions. It contradicts itself. There's no logic to it. We hear all these people that are declared brilliant and they win all kinds of awards in, in science and philosophy and in writing. How many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? Ever heard of Richard Dawkins? He's, he's kind of a, 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 a militant atheist, if you would. You know, he made a comment like this. There is no good. There is no evil. There is only blind, pitiful indifference. Hell, he's got to be a happy man. And then he went on and said, we're all just dancing to our own DNA. That's how he explains it all. So there's no good. There's no evil. Oh, by the way, he wrote a book, and it was all about the evil of Christianity. Where is the logic? In that, there is no good, there is no evil. Boy, Christians, or you're evil. You're narrow-minded, you're intolerant, you're brainwashing all your children, you're evil. Wait a minute, there is no evil. We're all just dancing to our own DNA, whatever that means. And this is the way so much of the world thinks, and this is the type of people that get platforms to share their ridiculous philosophies from. And the Word of God is so simple. And the Word of God is not contradictory. When we interpret the Christian statement about God in the presence of evil, it could look like this. God is good. God is all-powerful. God created the world, and the world contains evil. There is no contradiction in those statements. None. As Christians, we do not pretend that there is not evil in the world. We would never say that there's not evil in the world. We acknowledge that there's evil in the world. So when they use that kind of argument and say, God is good, God is all-powerful, God created the world, the world contains evil, that's really not what they're saying because they think there's a contradiction there. What they're saying is something more that would look like this. God is good. God is all-powerful. God did create the world. The world shouldn't contain evil, and the world contains evil. They are making this assumption that somehow or other the world should not contain evil. And that's their point that they're trying to make to show us that Christianity and our God is a fallacy. It's a fairy tale. It's not truth. 
the assumption that there shouldn't be evil in the world. You know, we make this assumption because we, and if we're not careful, we can think like this as Christians. We can think this way because God is good, because God is evil or is, is all-powerful, he must want to eliminate all evil in the world. You would have to be omniscient. In other words, you have to be all-knowing to know for a fact that no good things come from anything that's evil. We don't understand the mind of God. And that's okay. We need to be okay with that. We need to understand that God's ways are not always our ways. So when they make this argument about throwing, why is there evil and suffering? And it is a very legitimate question. And it usually comes more often than not from the heart. They're not just trying to argue with us. They're trying to understand. They look at the world and they know that the world ought not be this way. And somehow or other, they think that this kind of argument is an argument that can be used to deny the fact that there is a God. I want us to see, and this is what I'm trying to accomplish today, is to say the fact that there is evil and suffering in the world is some of the greatest evidence that there is a God that's out there. Just the opposite of what the world would try to make as their argument. One of these things, or one of the things you need to do whenever you get into a discussion, if you can, is try to define the terms that you're using. For example, how would you define evil? Think about that for a moment. How would you define evil? Well, Webster's Dictionary, I use that. And I got to tell you right up front, the reason I put the date there, it's 1991. Now, Webster may have had to redo this to be more politically correct. But back in 1991, the Webster Dictionary said these words. As an adjective, that word evil is something that is morally wrong or bad. Which, to me, tells me absolutely nothing. Who determines what's morally wrong? Who determines what's bad? That definition doesn't work for me. As a noun, it's something evil. Well, that's good. How do you define evil? It's something evil. The force in nature that gives rise to wickedness and sin. So evil is a force. It's not really a thing that gives rise to wickedness and sin. Who defines wickedness? Who defines sin? The definitions, just in my mind, bring more and more questions to the forefront. And then as an idiom, how many of you know what an idiom is? Not an idiot. That's me. An idiom. I had to look up. And I had no idea for sure what an idiom was, but we use them all the time. It's, it's a phrase or, or a definition that you would not figure out from just looking at the words themselves. As an idiom, when we say the evil one, the devil, or Satan, evil. It's an idiom. Well, isn't that interesting? Obviously, Webster understood that there was a spiritual reality, that there was evil and there was wickedness out there. I'd be curious. If you've got a brand new Webster's Dictionary, I'd love to to know what they say these days. But when you look at that, this definition doesn't help me. In the series that we were doing in the Abundant Life Academy classes that uh, we were teaching, 
Um, it was through the, it was called the Thinking Series. It was by Apologetics Canada. One of the guys leading it in most of the videos, his name was Andy Steger. He gave us a definition, and then he developed that definition. And I like that definition. His definition of evil is this. Evil is the corruption of something good. Evil is the corruption of something good. And he uses an example, one that you've probably heard many times before, of counterfeit money or counterfeit currency. Did you know if to have counterfeit currency, it requires that you have the real thing? You can have real currency without there being a counterfeit. But you cannot have counterfeit currency unless there's real currency. Does that make sense? And he went on to say, now take that line of thinking and let's talk about evil. Can evil exist if there's nothing to compare it to? What is evil? It is the corruption of good. Good can exist without the presence of evil. Evil cannot exist. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever unless there's good. The corruption of good. Matter of fact, if there were no people on planet Earth, would there be evil? Good question. Now we could say that there's Satan who would probably still be here, so there's evil. He was also a created being, created with a free will, and he made a choice. So let's remove the angels, and let's remove people. Does evil exist on the earth? Evil seems to require people for evil to really be manifested, to be a thing, this force that's out there. Evil is the corruption of something good. You know, when something happens, or we see it on TV or with all the social media, all the ways we can communicate today in the world, if something happens somewhere, there's going to be a video of it because everybody's got a camera in their hand, right? And we see all this evil. We see all this horror. We see starving children. We see death. We see all these things. And people just go, God, that shouldn't be that way. You can kind of see where they would say, if there's a good, all-powerful God, why doesn't he stop that? It shouldn't be that way. The world ought not be that way. You know, and that statement and that line of thinking tells you that they know that there, way, there is a way that the world ought to be. It should be this way. But the, real, the fact that there's evil out there lets them or tells us that, you know what, if you believe in evil, you automatically believe in good. Following me? If you believe in evil, you automatically believe in good. If you say this isn't the way things ought to be, there must be a way in your mind that things ought to be. The world shouldn't look like this. The world should be something different. Well, what should it be? Which brings us to the second definition that we need to understand. What is good? What is good? The world is trying its hardest to subjectivize. Instead of making good and evil an objective thing, they want to make it very subjective. In other words, your evil is your evil, my evil is my evil. I want to do this. You can call it evil if you want. I don't see it as evil. I think it's good. You know, and that rationale can go only so far until it runs into some problems. It's like saying there are no absolute truths. 
Are there absolute truths? Of course there are. And the thing about being good, you know the reason people say things shouldn't be like this, they ought not be like that, the world shouldn't look like that, is because they know in their, in their being that there should be a good out there. There's something wrong with the way it is, but they don't know what that good is or where that good came from. There needs to be an objective standard of what goodness is. What is that objective standard of goodness? There's only one source that works. And that's God. God is good. Good and evil do not exist outside of God. It's not a random thing. God doesn't look around and go, oh, that's evil. That's good. That's evil. That's, well, that's pretty, that's hard to tell. No. It's his very nature. It's who he is. God is good. There is an objective standard for goodness, and it's God, his very nature, who he is. We all say that God is good. What are we talking about? It's his nature. He can't not be good. It's who he is. Where does the standard come from? It comes from him. How is it expressed in his very nature? How is it best expressed? How does God best express goodness in a way that we would understand? And I would just offer this as my answer through relationship, the meaning of life. God's nature, his goodness, best expressed through relationship. And again, we have that perfect example of relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Perfect unity, perfect oneness, a perfect relationship. And he created man and all of creation, actually, to be in a perfect relationship with him. So evil, in a sense, is a corruption of good, but it's also a corruption of relationships. Where evil exists, relationships become corrupted. And if that corruption goes unchecked, it ultimately leads to a death. The death of a relationship. God is good and he is the standard. Without God, without there being a God, who we've identified who he is, without there being a God, there would not be a way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. Why? How come? Why should things be that way? Why ought it be that way? Because there's God and his nature is good. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. People like Dawkins would have it right. We're just dancing to our DNA. We're just miserable human beings muddling through life, and it is what it is. The truth is, all people, I believe all people, realize there are certain standards that are good, and there are certain standards that are evil, and they're always good, and they're always evil. For example... I think everybody, everybody, if they're of sound mind whatsoever, would acknowledge that there is a standard of goodness that children should be loved. And there is a standard of evil that would say it is evil when children are starved and tortured. They know it shouldn't be that way. There is this something in them that knows it ought not be like that. 
there are some things that are beyond opinion. What do you think? Is it a good idea that we torture and, and starve children? Really? Who wants to get into that discussion and share your opinion that that's okay? Everybody knows that's not okay. There are certain things that go beyond even written law. For example, um, depending on how well you're up on your history, anybody ever hear of World War II? Okay, good, most of us. After World War II, and after all the German atrocities really came to light, a lot of the people were, were tried for war crimes. You know what they called them? One of the things they called them? Crimes against humanity. Did you know, I didn't know this until I was preparing for this message, did you know that basically they were tried in Nuremberg, Germany, nothing that they did was against German law. The Nazis had changed the laws while they were in power, so nothing that they did in killing all these people, purifying the race, was against their laws. What in the world? How do you try somebody when the law has been violated? One of their primary defenses when they were tried was, hey, I was just following orders of a superior over here. I'm really not guilty. If I hadn't followed orders, they'd have put me in the gas chamber, right? That didn't work either. Why? Because there's a law above the law. There's a law that doesn't have to be written down. There's a law that they understand that, that it sometimes it's called the divine command theory. Now, an atheist wouldn't call it that because they don't believe there's a divine. But they would also acknowledge there is a law above the law. And that's what the Nuremberg trials were about, and that's why they were convicted. The laws weren't written down. The laws weren't even broken in Germany at that time. But people were executed because of their crimes against humanity. Because they understand that there are some standards that are always good and there are some standards that are always wrong, no matter what. And our, one of our goals in going through these questions is to help us to, in an intelligent way, explain to people good, evil, why it exists, but for an ultimate purpose of leading them to Christ. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Why is there evil and suffering? Well, the Bible says, first of all, in Genesis 1.31, that God created the world and he said it was good. He said it was good. When God created the world, when he spoke it into being, when he created Adam and Eve, he looked at everything that he created and said, this is good. And then he said, whatever you do, don't eat of that one single tree, that tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. Because when you do, you will certainly die. When you do, our relationship will become corrupted. And that corruption will ultimately lead to spiritual death as well as physical death. Don't eat of that one tree. But when God created it, he was in perfect relationship. Because evil did not exist, there was only good. By God's nature, everything he created was good. I mean... The animals wouldn't even died. Nothing would have died. There would have been no corruption on the earth. Second thing the Bible tells us is that Satan fell from heaven. We know that Satan was a created being. He was an angel. 
And he was created with something that we are also created with, and that was called free will. And if you read in Revelation chapter 12, you'll, you'll see when he was cast out of heaven and he convinced a third of the angels to go with him. When there's free will, there is a negative to that. We can make wrong choices. Satan made a wrong choice. Satan became corrupted. We also see in the Bible, the man sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, he gave them instructions, what they could and couldn't do. Knowledge of good and evil corrupted their relationship. The evil corrupted the relationship. Their eyes were opened. Man's nature was corrupted. Relationship with God was broken. Relationship with other people was also corrupted. It didn't take very long before we had Cain and Abel, brothers, one killing the other. Relationships broken. Man's corrupted nature is one of the primary causes for evil in the world today. We can't blame Satan for everything, sorry. Matter of fact, in uh, James chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does does He tempt anyone else. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, that corrupted part of man. When we accept Christ, we are born again. Our spirit is renewed. But that old man, that old nature, there's residue. We still have things in our mind that we need to be renewed by the washing of the Word of God. There's a sanctification process that's going, ongoing. My body, my body is still suffering the effects of the corruption that took place when Adam and Eve sinned. Unless Jesus comes back, I'm going to die. In case you didn't know, so are you. But one day we will have a body that will be a glorified body that will never die. It will never perish. Corruption will be removed. Evil will be gone. All creation was cursed, the Bible tells us. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and Romans 8, 22. In Romans 8, 22, it says, we know that the whole creation groaning, has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. All of nature has been corrupted because of evil. Why is there evil and suffering? Well, I'm going to give you a couple possible reasons. And the fourth one I'll give you is the most accurate one I'm sure of. The first one is simply this. Free will. The free will argument. And you can read about this. There's this whole thing called the free will argument out there that man was created with a free will because we weren't, God didn't want a bunch of robots who obeyed and had to obey. And there was impossible for them to make a choice. He wanted to create human beings who could make a choice, that have a free will, so that when we choose to follow him, believe in him, surrender our life to him, he receives all the glory and honor because it's an act of our free will. The bad news there is we can make a wrong choice. People choose wrongly. So because people choose wrongly, there will be evil and suffering and pain in this world. 
evil and suffering and pain because of our own choices and actually evil, suffering and pain because of the choices other people make and we have to endure some of those consequences. So one of the reasons that there is pain, evil and suffering could be the free will argument. Another position that some people take is that evil and suffering are necessary for human growth, human virtue to develop, for us to develop patience, long-suffering, endurance. To develop even selfless love requires pain, evil, suffering. Third argument that you could make that evil is necessary to promote a greater good. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work for good for those who love him. All things work for good for those who love him. We don't understand natural disasters. We understand and we know that the earth has been corrupted. All creation has been corrupted. One day there's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth, but until that day there is corruption. And we don't know that when a tsunami strikes or a tornado comes or sickness or disease happens, we don't understand what good may come out of that. All we see is the pain and the suffering and the evil. We are not omniscient. We are not like God. We don't understand and know everything. We have no idea how many people might come to the Lord because of something we would call evil. Some of us that remember when 9-11 actually occurred. What happened to church attendance? It soared. That evil, that pain, that suffering drove people to God. And this is the way it should still be today. There's evil all around us. There's pain all around us. There's suffering all around us. Instead of driving people away from God and saying there is no God, it should drive us to God, the source of all good, the one who knows the way it ought to be. He set the standard. We have no idea how many people truly accepted Christ after 9-11. We have a hard time thinking that that could be the reason that God allowed that. You know what? God doesn't control all those events, but he does control the outcome. He says he will work all things for good for those who believe. That doesn't mean everything that happens is going to be good. Anybody here ever had bad, evil, pain, or suffering in their life? Yeah, pretty much unanimous, isn't it? God will use that for good for those who believe. Can he control things? Could he stop things? Absolutely. Do I believe he does sometimes? Absolutely. But I'm not omniscient and I can't tell you when and how or why not. And the fourth thing is simply this, and this is the only answer I have complete confidence in. It's a mystery. I don't know. I don't know. I think you can make some compelling arguments with any of those other three, and you can maybe make some compelling arguments with some that you have thought of yourselves. But the reality is, God hasn't made it crystal clear. So it is a mystery. So the real question becomes this. Can you trust God in the midst of whatever? You know, the good news of all of this is God did not leave us in this helpless situation. He did not leave us where evil, the power of sin, the power of death, controls us. 
He gave us an option. He gave us a free will to choose. God had a certain level of justice and it had to be met. And part of his nature is mercy. And he met both of those in the cross. He sent Jesus. He came to earth. God in the flesh is Jesus to pay the price for our sins. That we are no longer controlled by sin. We are no longer controlled by evil. It no longer has power over us like it does an unbeliever. If we accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin, we are new creatures in Christ. We are no longer controlled by sin, controlled by death. We have a certain hope that the promises of the Bible, such as all things work for good for those who believe and love Him. It gives us a hope. It gives us a peace. The Holy Spirit in us. It's fruit of the Spirit. There is that love. There is a joy. There is a peace, no matter the circumstances. This is the good news. And when we see evil, when we see pain, when we see suffering, and people ask us questions like that, we have the good news. We have the truth. We know the way the world ought to be, and we know why it ought to be that way. Because there is a God who is good and loves us. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you for the word that you have given us, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for, for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and is our teacher, gives us revelation, understanding. Father, I pray for, for you by your Spirit to give us the grace to, to answer questions like this when they come our way in a way that draws people to Jesus in a way that that draws them to the hope that's available to all through Christ. Father, Paul said that he can be all things to all people. Lord, I pray in this way you would help us to be able to be all things to all people, that we could meet them where they're at and lovingly, with truth, bring them to a place where your Holy Spirit can change everything. We thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of that, a part of you rescuing others the way you rescued us. Lord, I praise you and thank you that we know as Christians that there is life after death. We know the answer to that question. I pray, Lord, even next time of the week as we look at that answer, that question, Father, you would give us greater understanding that we can share that hope with those you bring across our path. Lord, I pray now for all that are traveling. Pray for each one here as we travel. God, in this cold weather, God, we pray for your safety and protection. We pray, Lord, as we continue to look into a new year, Father, even though it's only a day on a calendar, God, we we thank you that we can look ahead for what you have for us coming in this future year. Even as we look backward and give you thanks for all that you've accomplished, all that you've been to us, all you've done for us and through us in this past year. We pray, Lord, for your continued leading, guiding, and direction 
And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.